That was the opening music from Paramount's Double Indemnity, released in 1944, and you're listening to Episode 3 of Classic Movie Reviews at ClassicMovieReviews.net, and you can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews in the podcast section, and you should be able to find us. Uh, I'm Matt Johnson, recording from the great Pacific Northwest. And uh, I'm Bob Johnson reporting from sunny Los Angeles. <laughs> it did rain, though. I mean, it might be rainy in Los Angeles. Yeah, if it's raining. It did rain. It did rain a lot last week, didn't it? You had some uh, torrential downpours, it sounds like. It, it did. There were like three or four days where I thought I was back in Seattle. Nice. Yeah. But today's uh, not that. <laughs> yeah. So, just a little bit of follow-up on last week's podcast. Uh, last week we did On the Town. I, I listened to the podcast and I realized that I was pronouncing Gene Kelly's character's name as Gabby, but actually it was Gaby, and I, I guess that's probably short for Gabriel or something like that, but uh, it was Gaby. I think Gabby is more commonly, I hear that more commonly now than Gaby, but but Gaby's kind of a cute, almost like a nickname that, that he had in the movie, and, and I uh, was mispronouncing that, but no big deal. I'm sure I'll do more things like that as we proceed through our podcasting. <laughs> uh, so we have a special episode today. Uh, I would say this is a, a truly great movie. In fact, it's so great. We, we might end up splitting this into two episodes because uh, I actually took almost nine pages of notes as I was watching the movie. So this could end up being part one, and uh, we might release part two next week. It's just that good. So why don't we just jump right into it? Do you have anything to say before we get started? Well, I would agree with you. When I took the movie class at Bellevue College, we spent an entire uh, afternoon on just this movie alone. There's so much going on in it. It's it's a wonderful movie. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I I forgot you taking that class. Uh, that That's good. I mean, it's... There's probably information that you got from that class that is going to be helpful in talking about the movies that we watch, because it was a it was a class. What was what was the class again? It was about old movies. It was the uh, it, it was the films of Billy Wilder. It spe- it specialized just in his uh, films because he's done so many excellent films. You know, like The Apartment, Some Like It Hot, Sunset Boulevard, Stalag Seventeen, to the on and on. What a talent and creative guy. Yeah, there was there were so many great lines in this movie that I felt like I could end up with a hundred audio clips. So it opens up uh, with a great score. The music really sets the tone. The opening credits scroll over a silhouette of a man on crutches. And if you hadn't seen the movie before, you wouldn't you wouldn't get that part. But it's uh, some great foreshadowing for later. Uh, and what ends up happening in the plot. For me, the, the movie uh, is, is made that much better by the, by the music. They just come together perfectly. And I believe the uh, music was done by Nicholas Rosa, who's did, who did a lot, of, a lot of movie scores. I think this is his best. Yeah, the music was great. It really just kind of went right along and, and kept pace with the with the plot and the the dialogue. It was it was really well done. Uh, and then we cut from that. The, we cut from the opening to a car racing through the city at night. 
uh, it just blows right through a stop sign and almost crashes. It's 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 really dark and moody looking. And uh, as I was watching it the second time, I noticed that almost the entire film is set at night. There are a few scenes during the day, but uh, so a question I had as I was watching this, and we were thinking about film noir, and maybe you know the answer to this, but. Do you think Billy Wilder knew that he was making a film noir, you know, quote-unquote film noir movie? Or was this just kind of a, a style of filmmaking at the time? You know, you had that question on your earlier notes, so I looked it up. And from what I found, film noir as a term came into being in 1946, which was two years after this movie was released. And movies like this one at the time before that term was uh, adopted were just referred to as melodramas. And then in the 1970s, film noir really became the accepted phrase for this. So he probably just thought he was going to do another movie because he did everything from comedies to uh, dramas, uh, everything in between. I, I don't know. I think he just thought he was having fun making this movie. Yeah, so the, the 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 term film noir, I guess it's just noir is is dark night. To me, that that word just symbolizes the style of filmmaking, the the mood of the film, the the way they use the black and white, and how there's a lot of scenes that are set in really really dim lighting. And it's interesting to me that it wasn't until the '70s that that became kind of an accepted term. I was surprised by that too, but every time I look at this movie, I think it could be the poster movie for film noir. It's it's so good. There's so much of that, like the Venetian blinds, you know, that are made to look like prison cell bars. They show up in so many scenes. And the apartment that he lives in and her home look really kind of tacky. Even though he does make a comment that she lives in a house that was pretty expensive. I think he said it was $35,000 at the time. Uh, in 1938, yeah. 1938. Uh, when you actually are inside the house, it doesn't it doesn't seem like, you know, a mansion or anything like that. It does still feel kind of run down. Uh, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because we cut from that scene of the car racing through the city to uh, a man. We, we see a man from behind. He seems hurt. He's mostly in shadow and he's headed into an office building. And as he gets into the office building, he's, most, he's mostly alone except for the cleaning crew. And when we finally do see him from the front and there's some light on him, we can see that he's got a bullet hole in his shoulder and that he can't use his left arm. And then he does something that didn't really strike me as, as unusual at first, but then as I watch the movie, it, it does seem pretty symbolic. He lights his match with his thumbnail and then he, he does repeat that throughout the movie quite a bit, and it has uh, some significance at the very end of the film. And I looked it up, and you can't do that with matches today. They You have to strike the match against the little strike plate in the matchbook, uh, because <laughs> apparently they had problems with those matches where they would just spontaneously light. Oh, my. Because the, the, the match and the, the strike plate were kind of all one thing at that time so he was able to light the match with his thumbnail and it was interesting because um, Barton Keyes the character that Edward G. Robertson's character makes a comment that he doesn't keep matches in his pocket because they tend to explode yes <laughs> he so, was so good in that part and then we and then we 
we get into the the meat of the story. We start getting into the meat of the story because uh, Fred McMurray's character, uh, Walter Neff, sits down in this office by himself uh, and starts talking into a dictaphone, which was a really common piece of office equipment back in the late 30s and and into the 40s. But it's basically like a tape recorder, but it records onto a wax cylinder. And he starts talking about what's happened. Office memorandum. Walter Neff to Barton Keyes, claims manager. Los Angeles, July 16th, 1938. Dear Keys, suppose you'll call this a confession when you hear it. Well, I don't like the word confession. I just want to set you right about something you couldn't see because it was smack up against your nose. You think you're such a hot potato as a claims manager, such a wolf on a phony claim. Maybe you are. But let's take a look at that Dietrichson claim. Accident and double indemnity. You were pretty good in there for a while, Keys. You said it wasn't an accident. Check. You said it wasn't suicide. Check. You said it was murder. Check. So he's talking about these events, and then he gets to the part that is really the big reveal here just in the first few minutes of the movie. It was perfect. Except it wasn't because you made one mistake. Just one little mistake. When it came to picking the killer, you picked the wrong guy. You want to know who killed Dietrichson? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keys. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff. Insurance salesman. 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. And the thing that I really liked immediately about this movie was that it just had great dialogue. Even though it's just him talking, the dialogue was so snappy and so engaging. It really is. I think that's one of the things that the music, well, everything about this movie is just, it's great. Like I I said earlier, I think I could have had a hundred audio clips in this this particular podcast. I just kept pausing the movie and Ooh, I want to record that. Ooh, and then I finally had to say, okay, <laughs> I've just got to pick the best, the best of the best. Uh, but then we, we cut to a scene, and now we're going into the past, and it it's probably a few months into the past uh, from where we start the movie, but he, he uh, Walter Neff is making a sales call to the Dietrichson household. Mr. Dietrichson is not home, but Mrs. Dietrichson is. Uh, boy, there's some kind of chemistry bef- between them right from the very get-go, don't you think? Oh, definitely. She, yes, definitely. Uh, and that blonde wig helps that whole uh, appearance thing. Wow. Okay, so I have to admit that I didn't realize she was wearing a wig the first time I watched it. So, <laughs> I guess from my research, uh, Barbara Stanwyck was reluctant to do that part because it was such a dark role. And uh, Mr. Wilder talked her into it, said, you need to do this. This is going to be a great movie. You're going to enjoy it. And it's going to really help your career. So she kind of reluctantly did it. And later she said it was uh, just a great experience from beginning to end. 
So, uh, you know, we rely on IMDb quite a bit for some of our research on, on these movies. And in the forums, there were a lot of posts on this movie. And one of them was about the wig. And some people were saying that it actually added to the character because it just made her seem that much more tacky. And then other people said that it was terrible and that they could barely watch the movie because the wig was so distracting. Like I said, I didn't realize that that it was a wig, but part of that was that I'm not really familiar with her work, so I didn't realize that that's not her hair color that she would normally have. So I was coming into it pretty uh, naive, and it didn't bother me at all. It seemed appropriate, so... Did, did... did it what was the effect of the wig for you did it did it add anything to it or what did it detract from the movie well when i watched the movie for the first time or two a long time many years ago it did detra- it did detract from the role and then each time i've watched it since then and it's been many times i've watched this movie it it grows on me as a real integral part of making her who she is in the movie sort of a a phony. I think you mentioned the word phony. Yeah, well, Deep, I, I think I called her tacky, but yeah, phony tacky. might be is a better description. <laughs> another aspect of film noir that I wanted to talk about that I think comes out so strongly in this movie is the idea of the femme fatale. And this seems to be a trope that is in most of the really good film noir movies that I've watched, where there's a, a woman character who isn't what she seems, and kind of end up ends up being the downfall of the protagonist of the of the movie in this case uh Walter Neff's character. It is true and and the author of of this book uh James Kane did uh The Postman Always Rings Twice which is also kind of the same theme and then there were others like The Killers. But yeah, it, it, Out of the Past is another one where there is a uh, a femme fatale. Their body language in this opening scene when they first meet is really provocative. Uh, the way he sits on the arm of the couch and she's directly yep. opposite him in the chair and she's kind of leaning back and her legs are crossed and then she uncrosses them. I thought that was probably as far as they could push that given what you had mentioned uh, in our first podcast about the the film. Uh, what, what did you call it? The film? Well, I think the, I'm not the sure this is the official or... title, but it was, I think it was the Hayes Production Code, which all the studios signed on for in the early 30s to set a certain set of standards on filmmaking. There, there's a lot of uh, innuendo in, in the movie, and it starts kind of in this scene. And then later, uh, I don't want to get there just yet, but we'll talk about it when we get there. There's a another scene that's just full of innuendo, and you, you pretty much have to think that there was a lot more going on between the two of them than what they could show on the screen. For sure. And did you notice, even in the scenes at her house, the Venetian blinds again in the background, the prison cell? And the, and the, and the way the shadows would fall from the, yeah. the windows onto the wall and would form that, that sort of prison cell uh, outline. Yeah, yeah, that was great. The cinematography is, again, just outstanding. Oh, and the the quality. Uh, I was a little bit worried about watching this uh, movie because I I had been reading that there were no good transfers of the film. So, for instance, even the Blu-ray version, 
apparently was pretty bad in terms of the quality of the film. Uh, but then I found it on Netflix, and it was pristine. It was so beautiful. It was They'd done a really great job of cleaning it up. That's where I watched it, too, and it it looks like a brand new uh, print. It does. Or yeah, they, print, whatever they did with it. So uh, Walter Neff goes through the types of insurance that his company offers, and, and uh, here we go with... Uh, her character, she asks about accident insurance. For instance, we're writing a new kind of 50% retention feature in the collision coverage. You're a smart insurance man, aren't you, Mr. Neff? Well, I've been at it 11 years. Doing pretty well? well it's a living. You handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dietrichson. We should tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As for instance? Phyllis. Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure. I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Some great banter follows from uh, between them. They're talking about the, the speed limit in, in California, uh, but they're really flirting pretty hard at that point. But he, he I think he just he falls for her really in that in that first scene i think he's kind of hooked at that point the next day uh the next day uh, neff goes into the office and we meet his boss played by edward g robinson uh his name's barton keys let's listen to that that uh meeting come on come on galopers you're not kidding anybody with that line of ball you're in the jam and you know it says you all i want is my money says you all you're going to get is the cops oh hello walter this is Sam Garlopas from Inglewood. Oh, sure, I know Mr. Galopas. Wrote a policy on his truck. How are you, Mr. Galopas? I ain't so good. My truck burned down. Yeah. Now, look, Galopas. Every month, hundreds of claims come to this desk. Some of them are phonies, and I know which ones. How do I know? Because my little man tells me. What little man? The little man in here. Every time one of these phonies comes along, he ties knots in my stomach. I can't eat. Yours was one of them, Garlopas. That's how I knew your claim was crooked. So what did I do? I sent a tow car over to your garage this afternoon. And they jacked up that burned-out truck of yours. And what did they find? They found what was left of a neat pile of shavings. What shavings? The ones you soak with kerosene and drop the match on. And we can immediately tell from that scene that, uh, Walt, that Barton Keyes is a super smart guy. I think he's probably a detective at heart, don't you think? I do. I do. He would have made an excellent detective on uh, Law and Order. Exactly. In yeah. today's world. He's a claims manager, which to me sounds like such a kind of a routine and not very interesting job. But the way he works it and the way he talks about it, you'd think it was the most interesting job in the world. Uh, he really goes into an exposition at this point about his job and the years that he's been in the job and all the difficulties that he's had and how people are always trying to cheat him. Uh, but that he has this little man in his chest. He ca keeps calling it his little man. I'm pretty sure that he had an ulcer or something in, <laughs> in his stomach because later in the movie he asks for some antacid or some, some mints or something to try to calm it down. But he says this little man never lies. He uses that line several times too. Just before Neff leaves the, the uh, Barton Key's office, he says something. He says, uh, You and your little man. 
You're so darn conscientious, you're driving yourself crazy. You wouldn't even say today's Tuesday unless you looked at the calendar. Then you check to see if it was this year's or last year's calendar. Then you find out who printed the calendar and find out if their calendar checked with the World Almanac's calendar. Now that's enough from you, Walter. Now get out of here before I throw my desk at you. I love you too. They have this little back and forth, and then he says, I love you. Right there at the very end, he lights a match with his thumbnail. So that's the second time that we see that in the movie. Uh, to me, this is such a great scene. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It, it really foreshadows the end of the movie. Uh, and it really sets up the relationship. And it has a great payoff at, at the end. I, I really like that, that little back and forth between them. It truly does uh, set up the ending. I agree. What do you think the symbolic meaning of him lighting that match with his thumb is? Is it just kind of a, a thing that he does? It's kind of like part of his personality? I, I think it's that. Yeah, I think it is that. I, don't, I didn't read anything more into that. Yeah. Although it seemed like in these movies from the 30s and 40s, everyone in the film was smoking. Oh, everybody smoked, yeah. You could almost you smell the smoke as you watched it. So uh, Neff gets a message uh, from Mrs. Dietrichson uh, that she wants to meet him early. They had had uh, another meeting set up, and he was supposed to meet with her husband. Uh, but she calls and says that she'd like to meet him early. So he, he heads out, and more banter between the two of them ensues. And she basically just lays out the plan here of what she wants to do. I want to ask you something, Walter. Could I get an accident policy for him without bothering him at all? How's that again? It would make it easier for you, too. You wouldn't even have to talk to him. I have a little allowance of my own. I could pay for it, and he needn't know anything about it. Why shouldn't he know? Because he doesn't want accident insurance. He, he's superstitious about it. A lot of people are. It's funny, isn't it? If there was a way to get it like that, all the worry would be over. See what I mean, Walter? Sure, I got good eyesight. You mean you want him to have the policy without him knowing it? And that means without the insurance company knowing that he doesn't know it. That's the setup, isn't it? Is there anything wrong with it? No, I think it's lovely. Then if some dark, wet night, that crown block did fall on him. What crown block? Only sometimes it can't quite make it on its own. It has to have a little help. I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, it doesn't have to be a crown block. It can be a car backing over and we could fall out of the upstairs window. Any little thing like that, just so it's a morgue job. Are you crazy? Not that crazy. Goodbye, Mrs. Dietrichson. What's the matter? Look, baby, you can't get away with it. You want to knock him off, don't you? That's a horrible thing to say. What'd you think I was, anyway? The guy that walks into a good-looking dame's front parlor and says, Good afternoon, I sell accident insurance on husbands. You got one that's been around too long, one you'd like to turn into a little hard cash? Just give me a smile and I'll help you collect? <laughs> Boy, what a dope you must think I am. I think you're rotten. I think you're swell. So long as I'm not your husband. Get out of here. You bet I'll get out of here, baby. I'll get out of here, but quick. And this is a, this is a big red flag for, uh, for Neff. Uh, and he gets kind of upset at that point. Uh, and, and kind of storms out. And he makes a comment as he's driving away from the house that uh, murder, he didn't realize murder could smell like honeysuckle. Because, I love that line. Yeah, that's a great line. Neff knows at this point that she wants to kill her husband. Is that followed by him stopping at a diner in Los Angeles and having a hamburger and a beer in his car? 
I believe so. Yeah, that's the Which, that's the part. It's a little he, little unusual these days. Yeah, that that cracked me up the first time I watched it. I loved it because it was so unexpected. I didn't realize that you could have a beer at a drive-in and and sit there in your car and drink a beer. You wouldn't see that today. That's for sure. He is he is like so confused and so uh, torn between his feelings, and he has fallen head over heels for Phyllis or Mrs. Dietrichson. Uh, and I think he's kind of mulling over in his head, like, what is he going to do? So he goes home, and here, his house, his apartment felt really claustrophobic to me. And I think it came back to that thing that you mentioned about the kind of the prison feeling. Right, and all the furniture looks old and bedraggled, and the paint looks like it's been on the wall for about 40 years. And, and it there's dust look... floating in the air, and it's just... Yeah, it just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It looks like a hovel, a hovel almost, just really run down. But he realizes he's hooked. And as he comes home, Mrs. Dietrichson shows up at his apartment. Uh, how did she know where he lives? Did she follow him? I, I, I wasn't clear on how she, she just kind of showed up at his place. Like uh, To me, the only way she would have found out, well, there would have been two ways maybe following him, which wouldn't I wouldn't put that past her because she was on a mission to kill her husband. She may have also called his office and, and somehow talked him into giving her his home address. It's funny. He doesn't seem surprised at all that she's there. No. It's just like, oh, yep, here she is. Uh, they they kiss. He admits that he's crazy about her. She's crazy for him. Um, Neff starts talking about all the various claims that he's he's seen and how nobody's been able to fool uh Mr. Keys, and that nobody's really been smart enough to to put it past them uh, to try to you know commit murder and get the insurance payoff. Um, she does this little thing about she does this thing that really slipped by me the first time, but the second time I noticed it. She questions him about his life, like does he live alone? Does he have any friends? Does anybody take care of his apartment? And to me, that was sort of her kind of scoping him out. Like, how connected is this guy in the in society? Like, how how much would he be missed if he disappeared? That type of thing. I agree, and I also felt that she was making sure there weren't too many people he would talk to about it. So she is really evil. I think she's so conniving, and it does not come across. It's very subtle at this point, but you know, watching it a couple times you really can kind of put the pieces together and wow, she's, she's planned this whole thing out way ahead of time. And she's five steps ahead enough. I think. I agree. So she tells a story about how her husband is so mean to her and beats her up and how all the insurance would go to his daughter and, and none to her. And she basically admits that she wants him dead, but, uh, she wants to do it in a way that Neff is suggesting. He says it's not easy to get away with it, and Keyes is too smart. And then we cut back to Neff uh, in the present moment, talking into the dictaphone. So we just sat there. She started crying softly like the rain on the window, and we didn't say anything. Maybe she had stopped thinking about it, but I hadn't. I couldn't, because it was all tied up with something I'd been thinking about for years since long before I ever ran into Phyllis Diedrichson. Because you know how it is, Keys. In this business, you can't sleep or try to figure out all the tricks they could pull on you. 
You're like the guy behind the roulette wheel, watching the customers to make sure they don't crook the house. And then one night you get to thinking how you could crook the house yourself. Because I think it's really important that they lay this out. Why would he go along with this plan to kill Miss, uh, Mrs. Dietrichson's husband? And he, he basically admits that he wants to crook the house. He's figured out a way in his mind. He's got it. He's really got it figured out how he's going to be able to, to scam the insurance company and get away with it. Just an aside, we met her husband uh, a little bit earlier, I think, or maybe it was later. I, I, the sequence that I've lost for the moment, but he wasn't the most pleasant person either. I think I don't think we've met him yet. All we've heard about him is from her. I think we meet him uh, pretty soon. He wasn't a pleasant person, but I also didn't think that he was like a real, you know, a-hole either. I, I mean, he was grumpy and kind of gruff, but not to the point where you'd want to kill him, you know? No, no. So here's that scene that I mentioned earlier where they... Uh, they cut they cut away to black and then they fade it back in and uh neff is sitting on the couch smoking and uh, phyllis is fixing her makeup and they they have a little bit of banter again and then she leaves and he kicks the corner of the rug back into place and there's much speculation on those imdb forums about whether they had sex or not and I think it's pretty clear that they did, in my opinion. That was their way of, of indicating that they'd done more than just talk at his apartment. I, I Yeah, I agree. And I think that conforms with the uh, production code that was in effect at that time. That'd be a different kind of scene in, in a movie today. I, I, almost lo- I almost would prefer the way that they did it here with the really subtle sort of innuendo. I, I don't think that showing anything more graphic would have added anything to the movie at all. So here we go with uh, Neff is in now. He's he's completely hooked. He says that they're going to kill him and they're going to get away with it. And it's got to be perfect, he says. And he's standing at the window of his apartment looking out and it's really dark and really raining and it's an incredibly moody shot. And it's just, oh, it's just classic, just perfect film noir, that, that whole scene there. I just love that. It, it is, in, in every aspect of what they put together there. And at this point, you think, man, they've, you know, they're going to do it. They've got this plan. You know, we don't know exactly what the plan is, but we, we, we think that Neff is smart enough to maybe, you know, he could actually figure this out. Here's where I think we enter the second act of the movie. And this might be a good place where we could end part one of the podcast. I think we've been going on now for uh, almost half an hour. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to have two sections. Otherwise, people will be dropping out of the listening. <laughs> yeah. So normally we would we would release uh, a, a podcast every other week. But because this movie is so great and we are going into a lot of detail here. And I think this movie deserves it. And I, I'm really enjoying going into this much detail. But we will release the next part of our discussion uh, next week. So you can look forward to uh, part two of Double Indemnity on ClassicMovieReviews.net next week. Uh, I'm Matt Johnson coming to you again from the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles. Not sunny Los Angeles, just Los Angeles? Just Los Angeles, yes. Okay, all right. Just so, so people don't get tired of hearing that sunny uh, all thing. All right. <laughs> it, So enjoy your week and happy movie watching.